whatever season you're in, it was always previously better or will be better next. Feel the same thing about any neighborhood that you're in in New York. You know, this used to be way better or probably will be much better soon. <laughs> Live from the Dangerous Fortress Monastery in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 55 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're getting grimdark as we talk about the Warhammer 40k setting. But first, the party makes an explosive realization in the Morning Glory campaign. And later, the Space Marine Librarian venerates the Emperor and purges his enemies in the Character Creation Forge. So, on our slow road to credibility, we've actually begun to receive swag from publicists who want to talk about, you know, their their game system or their company. From a publicist. <laughs> so far. <laughs> I'm sure more is coming. Right. It's in the mail. <laughs> but it presents a little bit of a dilemma. We don't have any sponsors. You know, all of this comes out of our shallow pockets. Right. <laughs> but we do want to maintain editorial neutrality when we talk about products so getting free things can certainly compromise that of course it also makes it way easier than having to buy everything we take a look at so instead we've decided that anything that we get from a publicist we are going to give away to you yeah regardless of whether we review it i mean we'll definitely read it if we decide we're going to review it on the air or not we'll give it away afterwards Mm -hmm. so currently we've got a copy of the pathfinder source book horror adventures which came out earlier this month i believe august 4th So it's brand spanking new. And uh, to figure out which one of you gets it, we're going to run a contest. Yeah, so every episode we ask for five-star reviews on iTunes because that helps new listeners find the show. So now we're going to offer a bribe for (laughs) five-star reviews. (laughs) Because nobody wants us to read their review in the air. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So if you leave us a five-star review on iTunes between now and August 31st, you're entered in the contest. And at the end of the contest, we'll draw a name from all of the iTunes reviews that have been entered. Yeah. Now, since we don't have contact info for people who leave iTunes reviews, just make sure you message us and let us know you know, who you are so that we can actually get in touch with you if you win. Yeah. And if you've already left us a review, if you're too one- bad. <laughs> no. Oh, no. <laughs> if you're one of the 26 people who was kind enough to do that, we aren't leaving you out. You just need to send us an email at totalpartythrill at gmail.com with the subject contest and the name of your iTunes account and you're entered as well. And in September we'll announce the winner. So in some other goings on around the Total Party Thrill community uh, I was on the Sharkbone podcast for their Cradle of Darkness actual play. Uh, Apologies to the Sharkbone podcast. But we played Hunter the Vigil which is a new world of darkness And the first episode is up on the Sharkbone feed. I think there should be a second episode up by the time this episode drops. So the first two episodes, I think it's going to end up being five or six. We played two sessions. I was really, really happy with the first episode. It sounded very good. I had a lot of fun playing that game. I thought it was really cool. So I'm excited to relive it. And you guys should definitely check it out as well. It sounds like a lot of fun. Keep in mind, it's World of Darkness. So it's got mature themes. Uh, If you normally listen with kids in the car probably don't want to listen to this one with kids in the car wait a few years <laughs> right <laughs> and we actually have a little bit of D news and we're a bit behind on the unearthed arcana so today we're going to talk about the faithful 
We hate it. Moving on. Yeah, that's pretty much <laughs> Wait, it. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's new subclasses for the Warlock and the Wizard for characters who are religious. So the Warlock gets the Seeker as an otherworldly patron. This is a deific being who travels the astral plane in search of knowledge and stuff, I guess. Yeah, it's terrible. Don't take it. Even the suggestions of deities from the established settings I'm looking at, I'm just like, wow, I would not have interpreted that deity that way. But let's talk about what the class does have. You get a shielding aura that is perfectly fine. It uh, gives you resistance to all damage, but it only does it for one round, and you can only use it once per encounter. Oh, so see, it's just one I, round per encounter. I think you got it backwards. I, I mean, I think this is actually really good offensively because it, it does an automatic warlock level plus charisma modifier damage to any hostile creature in the radius. The creature has to end its turn within 10 feet of you. Fair so enough. So the way that actions and movement work in 5e, they could run up, hit you, and then leave. And you know, you're a warlock, so you probably don't really have a good opportunity to attack. Um, yeah, Warcaster. And then you just hit him with an Eldritch Blast as they try and do now that. Now we have to take Warcaster. But yes, that's a fairly good combo. The point is, it is the most useful ability. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because you get a terrible pact. Uh, yeah, it's it's an option for a pact boon. You gain the augury spell and can cast it as a ritual. That is way better than being able to just cast rituals. <laughs> yeah, one of, the, <laughs> one of the other options is just cast rituals, <laughs> including the augury spell. Hey, once per encounter, you can get advantage on an intelligence check. Oh, uh, that's per short rest, sir, which is even worse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but don't worry. If you lose your star chain somehow... <laughs> it's still dependent on having an item in your hand. <laughs> right. But if you lose that item, if someone is dumb enough to take it, you can get it back in a one-hour ritual. <laughs> Only one hour. Yeah, so great. <laughs> At sixth level, you can teleport away for a little bit, cast two spells that target only you. And then you return. Super buffed, right. but probably not, actually. You pointed out it's actually really good if you're a cleric. Right, you can pop daylight stuff like that, and then actually get useful abilities. Uh, tenth level, you no longer need to breathe, and you gain resistance to fire and cold damage. So I think that's, that's the most useful. Of course, you know, sorry, tieflings. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and then at fourteenth level, uh, once per day, you can spend five minutes to basically give your party the benefit of a short rest, and so five minutes instead of an hour. Fine. Yeah, I think that one's kind of cool. The cool part of it, I think, is the time dilation aspect. You actually teleport somewhere. You get to spend an hour and take that short rest, and then you come back, but no time has passed. Yeah. So you could actually do things. You could, like, make dinner. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's weird because it's such a high-level ability, right? 14th level. And in reality, at 14th level of D&D campaigns, short rest, long rest, you know, you're you're not fighting your way through dungeons, right? You're right. you're going boss fight to boss fight for the most part, and you're fighting epic level fights. So like, okay, so so you can recharge quickly, but like your wizards and your sorcerers and stuff, they're not really getting a whole lot of benefit from this because it's only a short rest. So, yay, they can spend some hit dice. And what are the odds of having two or three fights with a short rest in between them? You know, it just doesn't happen at 14th level, and right. certainly not at 20th when you get to actually benefit from this. All right, so that subclass is lackluster, but let's talk about the wizard subclass, the Arcane Tradition Theurgy. So we've built a Mystic Theurge mm -hmm. in the Character Creation Forge, so we know what 5e is capable of providing as is. So with that in mind, Ishan, 
What do you think? It's super wonky. At first, I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. neat. You're a wizard and you get a domain. That's cool. But you don't actually get a domain. You kind of get a domain. Sort of, kind of. Yeah. Right? You got to invest a lot in it. You pick a domain and you get those abilities delayed. The things you would have gotten at level two, you can say get a level six. At level six, you can say get a level 10. Uh, except for 14 (laughs) (laughs) and everyone i've heard talking about this has noted how freaking weird this is Mm -hmm. but at level 14 you gain the cleric's 17th level ability their domain ability Mm -hmm. which means you're being rewarded by the deity before his lifelong faithful servants yeah Yeah. like his most powerful servants Mm -hmm in the world are having to wait right more than they're chosen yeah <laughs> this is insane I, I just i know it's just trying to fit it into the structure of the wizard's tradition and and that the cleric and wizard aren't on equal progressions but it's super wonky yeah and we've talked before about classes like homebrew or ua where they take the defining characteristic of another class and give it to a different class and this not only does that it does it earlier yeah like imagine if you're a cleric with the same domain how bad are you going to feel and in fact in game it needs to like be expressed somehow that like your deity doesn't like you as much as this person you know what i do i turn around and try and kill my god because (laughs) i will be level 17 and i'm going to fight my god now because he has betrayed me like there's no other way to read that right i would play this ahead of any other wizard Oh, yeah, easily. Yeah. Because you can also get six levels of something else. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Paladin? Cleric. Yeah. (laughs) Different cleric domain. Actually, it shouldn't be divine because we've given up on our god. That's probably true. (laughs) I stayed with you for 14 levels. You gave me everything I needed. (laughs) Now I'm out. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Take the money and run. Right. Fiend pack warlock. I always get worried when they start merging classes like this. Mm. I would rather see new class ideas than I would just remixing pieces of old classes. Right. Like multi-classing is pretty easy in the system. Just do that. That's exactly the purpose of multi-classing, right? So I guess it's an easier way to not give up your base spellcasting progression, right? But I don't think this is the right solution. I agree. All right. So where are we in the Morning Glory campaign? When last we left the party, they had just defeated Merrick's Decanath and defused some sort of magic-absorbing bomb. We also had the skull of Raltul Kesh oh, yes. <laughs> sitting <laughs> nearby, tempting everybody to embody the rage of war. Yeah. And then put me on your face. So we also had to deal with that. That was really the most pressing issue. And, of course, the party had determined earlier that the only way that they could really sort of make these vestiges inert was to take them to a plane whose philosophical alignment was in direct opposition to the fiendish overlord that it represented. Which is, like, always Irian. (laughs) (laughs) Irian usually works for a lot of things, yeah. Yeah. Positive energy. (laughs) Goodness, light. Right. (laughs) So we went to Irian. Yeah. (laughs) And then we hit it with a lot of spells and killed it. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we returned and got back to work. So the party visited Maven, their insider in House Caneth, to help them determine what exactly this small globe of interlocked metal leaves actually did. She had an inkling that it probably had something to do with the disjunction. And the party, after a fair number of knowledge checks, surmised that it was probably the key to undoing the spell that Primus had originally cast to basically create the Moorland to swap Seer with parts of uh, Dolor and Maybar. 
but not wanting to make any mistakes or just test things without actually knowing what they were doing, they decided they should probably actually go visit the Planetar Sage Hroan in New Metrol and get the advice of the angels to figure out exactly what they should do. So, plane shift. Right into the middle of an undead invasion. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, lots of radiant damage all around in the party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, being very powerful adventurers at this point, I think maybe level 17 by now. Had to be, yeah, because we had the epic destinies. Oh, you're right. They just cut a path through most of the undead, fought their way to the heart of New Metro, and met Kakebil and said, Okay, what is this? Holding aloft the metal globe. And when are you going to get inside this cyber shard? Because <laughs> right. we need to save the multiverse. <laughs> right. And Kakebil says, Well, actually, Kalik, your daughter is missing. Because, you know, she's captain of the guard, and she went to go rescue a contingent of townsfolk, and she has not yet returned. So I guess we're going to go help Calic's daughter. Calic said that with a, a little more gusto. But... R- right. <laughs> I think the party was split, or at least I'd like to think the party was split on whether or not this is mission critical. <laughs> well, they ended up doing it. We went. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Fought their way to the bottom of the castle, defeated two Death Knights at the same time, and rescued the rescuers, brought them all back, and then held a scholarly conference with the angels now that the undead invasion had been repelled for the moment, and determined that, yes, this was a disjunction bomb, and that, in fact, all that you needed to do to return Seer to the material plane was return to the scene of the crime, go to the place that Primus had initially dropped the dimensional anchor, which was in front of the library in the middle of the ruins of Metrol, smack in the middle of the Mornland, set off the bomb, destroy the anchor, and the swapping will probably occur on its own. So then we tried to figure out when was the best time to do this. <laughs> <laughs> the party knew that there was a bit of time slippage between the two dimensions, so they returned to the material plane, and one half of the party said, uh, let's go to Iolacar and rest. And the other half of the party said, no, no, let's do this immediately because as we speak, bad things are happening in New Metro. Yep. Which side won out? The wait and rest side. That's correct. Which side were you on? The wait and rest side. That is correct. Which side was Calic on? The hurry up and do it. My daughter is at risk side. <laughs> That's correct. He ended up outvoted. And he couldn't go do it on his own. The thing is, I had like a lot of persuasion at this point. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I think you persuaded everyone else who were very invested in self-preservation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you rested for a day, and at full power, you then traveled to the Moorland. Well, yeah, full power minus one teleport minus one spell. Teleport, yeah. <laughs> right, we had extras. <laughs> Actually, at that point, I think it was a simulacra who probably right. teleported <laughs> With the head of light. Right. <laughs> so return to the Ruin Library, the scene where the party had helped defeat Raltul Kesh four years prior. Bahar, being a completist and also a pessimist right. decided that he was actually going to stay with the bomb as it went off because the rest of you were like, okay, we're going to set the bomb off. We're going to teleport out of here and then it'll go off and everything will be fine. And he was like, I'm going to stay in here. Well, and he knew that he was least impacted when we got disjuncted previously. Right. He had so very that, few spells to cast. Right. So he just handed us his magic items and mm-hmm. said, come back for me. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah, but n- not kidding. <laughs> The party, except for Bihar, teleports far, far away. 
and then a few moments later, a blinding flash of light, and the entire landscape of a nation changes as the mornland and the dead gray mist fade away, and a slightly worse for wear seer reappears out of the mists. And then what happened? The party picks up Bahar, returns to Dumetral as heroes, and saying, Look, look what we have done. We have rescued you all. And Kokabiel says, All except for Kala, who was killed, <laughs> repelling an undead invasion, but six weeks ago. And we'll see exactly how that played out next week. So this week, we are talking about one of our favorite, asterisk, campaign settings, Warhammer 40k. Now, there's an asterisk, because this isn't really a campaign setting. It's kind of its own intellectual property. (laughs) But we've definitely played multiple RPGs in the setting. In fact, my only real interaction with Warhammer 40k is the RPG settings, because I've never played the tabletop game, nor do I need to. Yeah, so the brief history of Warhammer 40k before we kind of get into the elevator pitch and the setting itself, right, is it was a tabletop miniatures war game from the 80s. It's been through seven editions now. It's got the pretty Games Workshop, super expensive models, and it is a heavily licensed IP. Just about every type of thing you could put the IP on, they have done it. Uh, whether it's board games, card games, RPGs, video games. 150 books. Yeah, novels, supplements. And it's also sort of the progenitor of the grimdark genre, which is almost sort of a parody of itself. Murphy's Law is the only law. Right, yeah. <laughs> so what's the elevator pitch for Warhammer 40k? In the grim darkness of the far future, there is only war. So it sounds like a nice place. Now, I've talked before about how I don't really like horror. I'm not huge into Cthulhu mythos and, oh, you know, it's just a series of things getting more and more terrible until you finally go insane. But I love this system. Oh, I love this setting. Because it doesn't take itself quite seriously enough. Right. That, you know, you get that Cthulhu mythos of where if things are silly, you can't laugh at it because it's serious, right? Yeah. This is like, if things go badly, it's just kind of funny. (laughs) And I also really love that the world that the characters inhabit and that the game takes place in is actually is our world with just the slightest tweaking. Right. And then advanced 40,000 years. Yeah. So so that's the other thing, right? It is far in the future. It's the 40K comes from the year 40,000, mm-hmm. which is the 41st millennium. <laughs> Let's uh, let's give a brief overview of the setting. As you noted, it is kind of set in our world, just advanced far to the future. Humanity has basically peaked in technology around the 20th millennium. So about 18,000 years from now. Yeah. We have magic. We also have faster than light travel. We have warp engines and all types of crazy technology. Mm-hmm. See, that's the one tweak that makes the entire setting possible. And I love that they changed one thing and then everything spun out logically from there. So the only thing is that there is another dimension that is psychically reactive laid on top of our own. Right. The warp, the immaterium, pandemonium, the sea of souls. It is psychically reactive and it responds to emotions of sentient and living creatures. Yeah, if you have a soul, you are connected to the warp. And the warp is where we draw all of our magic from. In 40K, it's called psychic power you're a psyker if you're 
a wizard, but it's functionally the same. So in, in much the same way that like Dungeons and Dragons, you draw from the weave of magic. Right. So in the warp, there are three chaos gods in the 20th millennium. There's Korn, the blood god. You may have seen him from internet memes, blood for the blood god, skulls for the skull throne. Pretty one track mind. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess two track Two mind. tracks. <laughs> yeah. There's Nurgle, the god of plague and pestilence. And then there's Zinch, the god of magic and scheming and manipulation. These are all manifestations of things that exist in the world. They are base emotions or needs of life. Right. Basically, (laughs) violence, decay, and control. Right. And the reason they exist is because there are living things that embody these concepts. Exactly. So that's cool you know 20th millennium humanity's chugging along strong we've got this emperor guy who's united us and and we are all you know advancing towards yes the greatest greatness. of psychers that's true and then around the 25th millennium there's this powerful alien race called eldar who are space elves mm-hmm. they're so self-indulgent and orgiastic that they spawn a fourth chaos god <laughs> all on their own his name slanesh the embodiment of pain and pleasure and excess yeah so the universe goes to shit at this point <laughs> <laughs> because the birth of this chaos god rips a hole in the fabric of reality. Yeah. And all of humanity's awesome technology just goes haywire. Right. Our psychers go nuts, our technology becomes unreliable, and mankind descends into a dark age. Right. Think of a galaxy-wide EMP. Right. Except that when the Transformers explode, it's actually people's minds and they explode demons. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Bad stuff everywhere. Our galaxy-spanning Imperium basically becomes what we can reach within our own solar system. It takes about 5,000 years because this is a comically long timeline. Mm -hmm. But the Emperor finally manages to defeat all of this craziness that's going on and unites humanity around Earth, which is now called Terra, because... Faux Latin. Whatever. Yeah. And he goes forth to reconquer the stars. Mm-hmm. He has these 20 superhuman sons. They're called the Primarchs. And they lead space marine chapters who are his greatest warriors modeled after himself. You know, warrior monk in power armor type guys. They get scattered by the Chaos Gods because the Chaos Gods are spiteful. Mostly Zinch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so the Emperor is traveling across the galaxy gradually picking up his sons as he goes and Mm -hmm. restoring the space marine chapters they all have really cheesy names they have ridiculous backstories (laughs) they're all the best at everything and they all have gigantic pauldrons on their armor yeah even if you haven't played or read anything about warhammer 40k you know this because it's so ingrained in pop culture as like the silly guy with the huge armor and the giant gun yeah if you think your paladin in world of warcraft has big shoulders one they were ripped off from warhammer and two they're not nearly big enough (laughs) anyway the emperor is continuing on his great crusade he's picking up his sons the primarchs restoring his space marine chapters winning the war to reclaim the galaxy and then uh he just decides you know what, I've got other stuff to work on. I'm going back home to Terra. Horus, you're the first son that I found. Take charge. You're now the war master. Continue on my crusade. Yeah, things are going great. What could go wrong? (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the thing. Horus was jealous of one of the other Primarchs. He was worried that he wouldn't be the Emperor's favorite. So he gets tempted by the Chaos Gods. Mostly Zinch. Yeah. (laughs) 
He betrays the emperor. As you do. Uh, this leads to a civil war. Yeah, you knew this was coming. <laughs> but it gets named after him. It's called the Horus Heresy. Ooh. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> he ends up turning a bunch of space marines towards chaos. They rally behind him. Others stay loyal. Big civil war culminates with a big battle over Terra as Horus is attempting to finally seal his fate. And uh, Horus dies. The Emperor's mortally wounded. They seal the Emperor inside his golden throne. He's now on life support for the rest of time. Someone ripped off the Bible. <laughs> yeah, except for the <laughs> resurrection part. <laughs> He's getting there. Yeah. Three days, 30,000 years, right. you know. <laughs> so the Emperor is bound inside literally his throne. And all he does is exert all of his energy to light the Astronomicon, which is uh, like a psychic beacon that allows for warp travel. So humanity can still travel through the warp because the Emperor lights the path. Also, like now we sacrifice a thousand psychers a day to keep the Emperor alive. You know, no big deal. <laughs> we just round up all the sorcerers across the Imperium. I mean, it- they're, like a, they're like a quintillion people scattered across 10 million worlds. So like, what's a few thousand? Right. <laughs> <laughs> And then, of course, you know, without the Emperor taking care of mankind, uh, the whole Imperium falls apart again. Well, yeah, because people try to rule themselves. Right. (laughs) People are people, and that's sort of the ongoing theme from here. (laughs) So humanity, basically at war with everything around it and sometimes itself. Itself, right. Who are some of the races that are featured in 40K? Well, it's important to remember that the setting sort of was birthed in many ways as a D&D analog. It's very points of light. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of terrible things between small pockets of civilization. Yep. And there's also very direct analogs. They're fighting against the orcs. Orcs with a K. That's orcs with a K. Yeah. Space orcs. (laughs) Who speak in Cockney. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Cockney orcs. They believe red ones go faster and they always want more DACA. I don't know why. DACA explodes. Yeah, that's why. (laughs) They're the aforementioned Eldar, the Space Elves. They're also the Dark Eldar, the Dark Space Elves. Yeah. Which are basically the other elves who fell (laughs) and were so hedonistic that they survived the fall of the Eldar. So they're exactly like Drow. Yeah. So yeah, the Eldar, just take elves and turn them up to 11. They're weirder and more alien and incomprehensible and skinny and tall yeah all of their warrior casts are based on certain art forms as you do yeah (laughs) (laughs) they're basically hipsters yeah exactly (laughs) meanwhile the dark eldar all of their warrior casts are based on torture (laughs) basically like being in a room or a conversation with a hipster (laughs) there's also the aforementioned chaos space marines those are space marines who worship chaos they're the bad guys they're chaos cultists which are exactly the same as regular cultists in every other setting. Because some people are insane. Yeah, or tempted or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's also chaos demons, which are demons that want to eat your soul. So, same as before. Cornate demons are very much like D&D demons, but mm-hmm. Zinch demons and Slaneshi demons are much more like D&D devils. They're the Necrons, who are living metal constructs. They're basically the undead analog, very hard to kill. Yeah, they have their whole own backstory that goes back way before the Imperium and humanity, but like it's not important unless you really want Necrons. There's also the Tyranids, who are hive mind murder aliens, like basically aliens meets Jurassic Park meets Starship Troopers. Yeah, the bugs. There's lots of them, and they're <laughs> terrifying. And then the, the Tau, who are actually 
basically the humans. Yeah, they're caste-based society. They're humanoids. They're not actually human, but they all believe in the greater good, and they use these Gundam-style mech suits for warfare. And they're not actually psychically abled. Right. That's sort of their difference between the Imperium and Tau, is that Tau don't have a presence in the warp. Kind of like real people. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I think where the setting gets really interesting, though, and especially from a role-playing standpoint, is when we talk about the Imperium itself. Because there's all these different competing institutions that all think they have ultimate power and authority, and they're always kind of undermining each other. And it's just inertia that keeps everything moving in the same direction, right? Right, because all the role-playing games take place within the Imperium. You are agents of the Imperium or you live inside the Imperium, the Imperium of man. Right. And you are usually working against these other races that we've talked about. Yeah, exactly. There's limited exceptions, and we'll talk about those. But for the most part, everything is going to be very Imperial-centric in the role-playing games. So the interactions between different factions of the Imperium often take up the vast majority of the time and energy that your characters will spend. Right. So the guys who report directly to the Emperor, fortunately he isn't really receiving a lot of reports because he would not be pleased with them. (laughs) The highest caste of the Imperium is the High Lords of Terra. You do not play them. They will never come into contact with you at all. (laughs) They're, They're the shadowy figures who make sure things run as they need to while roughly scheming and backstabbing each other using every other piece of the Imperium at their disposal. Right. They're the Illuminati. Literally the Illuminati. (laughs) They may or may not even exist. (laughs) They're located on Terra. You'll never get to Terra either. Don't worry about it. (laughs) There's the Militarum, the military, obviously, and that's made up of the Imperial Guard and the Imperial Navy who are basically just ground troops and grunts who die by the billions every day holding back the hordes of orcs or tyranids or whatever horrible abomination they're throwing themselves in front of yeah and this is where a lot of the dark humor of the setting comes from it's the the die for the emperor or die trying (laughs) (laughs) they've published the uh, imperial infantryman's uplifting primer which is just a propaganda piece on how to die when facing much more powerful alien races right any commissar memes you've seen this is that yeah yeah they have the imperial commissar who is known for shooting his own troops in the back of the head for cowardice (laughs) or failure or (laughs) mouthing off you know just anything really But then there's also the Space Marines, and and we talked about those a little bit. Those are sort of your super warrior, super soldiers. They're all in power armor. They've got the gigantic pauldrons. They've got the super-powered weapons, right? They're the elite troops of the Imperium, but there's only 20,000 of them. Across the entire galaxy. Right. And one thing I like about the setting is that depending on the game system that you're playing, you can play at different levels. You can be one of these Imperial grunts or slightly above them, you know, and then see Space Marines from afar and sort of be awestruck and still be invested in the smaller tasks that you're able to carry out. Or you can play as a Space Marine and, you know, run around blowing things up. Right. Yep. Just depends on which game you want to play. Then there's also the Administratum, which is the galaxy's biggest bureaucracy. Yeah, if you love the roleplay paperwork, this is great. Yeah, it's mostly used for backgrounds, but it's it's one of the things that uh, in certain settings you really interact with a lot as, mm-hmm. as NPCs, right? Because they're tasked with administering this crazy, complicated, and far-stretching imperial bureaucracy, this network of planets that are cataloging and tithing and giving their due to the emperor, yeah, and I like that it answers that question. Like, what do most people do 
You know, if you're not an adventurer, well, you're probably, you know, somehow invested in keeping the slow gears of the Imperium turning. Yeah, the answer is data entry. You do <laughs> data entry. And one thing to note, technology-wise, you don't have supercomputers. It's a very rote and manual system mm-hmm. of technology, even in the far future. It's like low steampunk. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, mm-hmm. very much so. Speaking of technology, <laughs> we've got the Mechanicus, which is a cult of priests on Mars who worship technology and basically provide it and maintain it for the Imperium. Right. So remember, humanity was exploring the galaxy on its own when Slanesh was created and just blew technology to garbage. Right. And knowledge has not recovered. And in fact, people are terrified of knowledge, right? Because knowledge literally opens doors to demons inside your brain. Right. It is so dangerous to learn new things (laughs) that... All technology has basically become a form of religion. Mm -hmm. You worship the machine spirit of the gun that you use because it keeps you safe. You anoint it with its holy oils in the maintenance ritual, but you do not maintain it. (laughs) And is it really that hard to believe? Everybody has at least one person in their office who doesn't know how their computer works. They just know that if they press these three keys in this order, it usually starts running again. Exactly, yeah. But they don't know why. And and that person has been conditioned their entire life to never ask why. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Nor are they interested. They're actually kind of terrified of knowing why. Right. right. I just want to press these three keys in this order. So the Mechanicus are basically the only entity in the Imperium that is actively looking for technology and trying to develop it and understand it and advance it. And a lot of that comes from finding old technology and recovering and restoring it. That worship of technology, though, often also results in them trying to replace as many of their organic parts with machines as possible. Right, because you venerate yourself. (laughs) Yeah, obviously. (laughs) Heal thyself. Right. And continuing with the theme of worship, we also have the ecclesiarchy, who are the priests that are just trying to make sure everyone in the Imperium worships the emperor. And even more importantly than that, make sure that no one is accidentally worshiping chaos. Right. (laughs) Those rituals are very important because they do not lead to chaos. (laughs) And remember, one of the key tenets of the setting, magic and knowledge actually do let horrible abominations enter into the real world. Right. Yeah. It's a knowledge is power. Hide it well. Uh, Ignorance is a blessing. (laughs) (laughs) And then making sure that none of these groups are slipping up and betraying the Imperium uh, too blatantly. You have the Inquisition, which actually has different branches and sections sort of focused on internal heretics versus xenos threats versus just chaos in general Mm -hmm. they're the inquisition like the actual inquisition they're just the spanish inquisition except they have legitimate cause right like demons are real yeah yeah (laughs) i mean people do get possessed lots of them have just an axe to grind oh sure right they're not all good people i don't think any of them are good people Uh, okay fair enough there might be a couple in the fiction that were actually good people were (laughs) Ravener was always a good person. Yeah, maybe, actually. Maybe. Yeah. But he's definitely an exception. The Inquisition is, is actually just the sole focus of one of the games. So it's it's a really well-developed piece of the Imperium. So it's got a lot of internal politics that are pretty interesting, and we could probably do a whole other podcast just mm-hmm. on that. Right. Dark heresy. <laughs> right. It's also the sole focus of uh, many of the novels. So many of the better novels. The good novels, right, yeah. Because there are a lot of different writers. <laughs> right. <laughs> Then we have the Sisters of Battle, which are basically witch-hunting warrior nuns. 
also the female analog to the space marines yeah but, uh, it's not good treatment of female characters oh, no, not at all, at all. but the sisters of battle are pretty cool mechanically they worship the emperor so devoutly that they can never gain corruption but they definitely become insane <laughs> but then so does everyone yeah who doesn't and then last there's rogue traders who are pirates they're mm-hmm. spacefaring privateers that are tasked with expanding the imperium through colonization warfare exploitation you know killing a bunch of alien races whatever yeah much like the inquisition they get a lot of leeway in what they're allowed to do which makes them fun to play right so let's talk about some of the themes because we've touched on different pieces of it but let's kind of tie it all together well the most obvious theme is the grim dark setting not only do bad things happen but only bad things happen yeah everything is awful the Imperium is falling apart at the seams. There's no winning. Right. There's only losing a little later. Right. Staving off the inevitable. Right. And and the greater good is, at best, the lesser evil. There's technology as religion. Yeah, we touched on that. The fear of technological progress, and particularly of artificial intelligence, is so pervasive that you get to really enjoy that steampunk aesthetic of none of this should work. No one knows why. It just does. It just sort of does, right? right? This is a 27,000-year-old computer. Right. (laughs) They built it really well. It's really falling apart, though. (laughs) (laughs) And part of it is literally steam-powered. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) plutonium-powered. Not that anyone knows what plutonium is. Or what radiation leakage is. (laughs) (laughs) It must be evil spirits. Exactly. (laughs) You just don't worship the emperor enough. (laughs) Yeah, pray harder. And actually, that might work on occasion. Right. (laughs) It also enables there to be conflict between belief systems because there's only one religion in the Imperium. It's worship of the emperor. And then, you know, there are crazy cults, but they're obviously like horribly evil. Mm -hmm. But you have people who do worship technology as like a different version of the emperor or even totally separate from the emperor. And then and they're actually sort of considered both valid. Yeah. Just another theme right there is the themes of faith and heresy, mm-hmm. right? Within the Imperium, that Imperial creed, that Imperial faith is so critical to the safety of mankind overall. And the way that heresy is treated in the Imperium and the way that otherwise minute things are treated as these high heresies is a really pervasive theme of the setting. It can also be a source of comedy, right? Like you mentioned, there's this like twisting of belief systems to fit, right? The Mechanicus cult actually worships the machine god but the ecclesiarchy has sort of worked that out to be the emperor kind of the omnissiah yeah the omnissiah is like i I guess an aspect of the emperor because i mean like look we need you guys (laughs) so (laughs) we don't want to kill you right yeah it's it's not (laughs) chaos we know that so it's okay let's let's just call it the emperor okay (laughs) so you get that and, and it's like every planet has their old local traditions like from when they were brought into the Imperium. Mm-hmm. And it's it's all about how you manipulate that ancient religion to now incorporate the Emperor as its deity. It's a bit like how when Constantine decided that everyone was going to be Christian, you just sort of filed the serial numbers off the statues right. and went, um, yeah, that's that's John the Baptist. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also how the Romans like <laughs> got Mars Plus, in the first place, right? <laughs> And then there's also just this crazy impossible scale. One of the fun parts and also one of the very kind of humbling parts, right, is you're one amongst untold billions in this setting. Your individual impact is limited, but it's also important because 
a single demon on this planet could lose the entire system Mm -hmm. of planets. Yeah, this is one of the very few times when using the word billions isn't actually hyperbole. In fact, it really understates the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You can have a single city with 300 billion people in it. Right. Cities are large arcologies. People just live vertically and they strip mine the planets that they live on to do that. Right. Coruscant. It's basically Star Wars levels of scale, but darker and to the point of parody. Yeah. And and full of pollution. (laughs) (laughs) It does not look pretty on film. (laughs) Right. There's a single biome. It's always awful. Right. (laughs) And then you've got kind of silly things like kilometers long Gothic cathedrals with warp engines. Those are your spaceships. Mm -hmm. Right. That whole Gothic art style is almost a form of parody in there literally flying buttresses yeah (laughs) all right so let's talk a little bit about these specific role-playing games that you can run in the 40k setting so would you like to be an imperial guardsman waging war against all odds and very likely to die in the process only war is the game for you (laughs) yeah uh, in that one you are a normal person you have very low odds of succeeding individually but as a group you are relatively competent uh, and you are you know attached to a military regiment and performing those types of missions and campaigns it's very old school D feel to it yeah tomb of horrors all the time yeah the caveat here is that very low odds of success on any role yeah <laughs> right it's like 30 percent chance odds mm-hmm. if you're yeah if you're very good at what you do right if you want to be hyper competent and want to be a super soldier fighting the most dangerous enemies in the Imperium, how about Death Watch? You're a member of an elite team of space marines fighting horrible aliens who are out to undermine the Imperium. Yeah, and and Death Watch is attached to the Inquisition, so you'll be doing missions in, in small tactical teams for the Inquisition. A lot of times that involves some intelligence gathering after you've killed something or, you know, escape at the last minute, you know, those types of fun things. Yeah. If you actually want to feel like you're doing something, you're either going to succeed spectacularly or billions will die. Okay, but what if you want to be the bad guy? Because you know what sounded really freaking cool? Chaos. <laughs> Fortunately, that's a game for you. Black Crusade. Right. In, in Black Crusade, you are literally a heretic. <laughs> and your job is to uh, advance chaos and prove your worth to whichever god that you worship in order to grow your own personal power, hopefully while not directly screwing over your allies. And if you want, you can start with one of the other systems and eventually graduate to Black Crusade. Right, yeah, you get enough corruption. Congratulations, you're now playing Black Crusade. That's right. Do I want to die here or do I want to just give myself to the Dark Gods? Right. (laughs) So that one is uh, approaching the Imperium from the other side, right? Uh, All the other systems, you are Imperial and fighting for the Imperial cause. Black Crusade is the only system where you fight against the Imperium. And then we get to the two major systems, the, the ones that have sort of the broader appeal. First, we've got Rogue Trader. And that, like we've said, is pirates in space. But this is the system where you have some of the best access to technology and armament and knowledge and wherewithal to actually act in the way that you feel is most appropriate. Yeah, you've got the most freedom. You're not necessarily the most powerful characters because Death Watch characters are technically more powerful but you've although got, you may have an entire fleet yeah you've got a lot of resources at your disposal and a lot of a, a wide berth of how to use them and rogue trader is actually the only game where you're allowed to not play a human uh, you can be certain xenos races that are attached to a rogue trader crew 
But why would you do that? I don't know. Because you're filthy Xenos? Yeah. Yeah. You could be a Dark Eldar. Ugh. You literally have to commit torture to stay alive. Because <laughs> you have an empty hole in your soul. In our Rogue Trader game, our bosun is a Dark Eldar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's very effective. Yeah, because your crew is terrible. <laughs> yeah. Last but not least, of course, is Dark Heresy, in which you are Inquisitorial agents in an Inquisitor's Warband, uh, acolytes of the Inquisition, rooting out conspiracy and heresy and those types of threats. Mm -hmm. All types of threats to the Imperium. Power level is in the middle of the range, but it's certainly the most quintessential Warhammer 40k system. Yeah, it's, it's the one that is sort of unique to the setting, right? It combines that very brutal combat of 40k in general with cia crime thriller drama conspiracy Mm -hmm. sort of deal but with the almost parody grimdark veneer of 40k it has a very jason Bourne feel to it in that you are looking around for clues trying to unravel a mystery and then extreme and sudden violence yeah so they all share a system uh so that's one nice thing the exact details of character creation and, and whatnot are a little bit different but they all share a common core mechanic, which is a D100 system. Your abilities are ranked on a scale of 1 to 100. You add or subtract a modifier based on difficulty, and then you're trying to roll underneath your target number. Determine your degrees of success, and that tells you how well you succeeded or how badly you failed. Right. Is it the easiest, most effective, or most balanced system? Nope. Not at all. It's not very elegant in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, it it could be clunky. A, a lot of these have a lot of splat books now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think Rogue Trader has like 12 or 14 supplements. So there's a lot of material for some of these systems. Uh, Dark Heresy was just rebooted with the second edition two years ago. So it's got four total books, a core book, and three splat books. So it's a little bit smaller. We were really hoping that Rogue Trader would be rebooted and that they would be compatible. That's sort of up in the air now. Yeah, not sure if that's going to happen. But yeah, I mean, if you want 40K, I think they do a good job of immersing you in the setting through the system. Yeah, and I'd say that all of these systems are really hackable. You know, you can tweak them. And the setting is such that if there are horrendously bad outcomes because you balance something poorly... Well, that's to be expected because the system kind of pushes you in that direction anyway. You could have balanced it perfectly and that would still have happened. Yeah, every character has the ability to cheat death mm-hmm. and you will use it frequently, especially right, especially if you play with published modules because almost all of them yield near TPKs in their boss fights. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be any attempt to balance the end battles in any way to make them achievable. No, they're they're meant to be a challenge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one requiring sacrifice (laughs) right but that's totally in fitting with the canon of the setting right is that one human is nothing if you can manage to avert a major chaos incursion or or the summoning of a demon or the binding of a demon host or something like that that's a major accomplishment for a single person that saved a billion people in the process yeah you save a sector from a horrible incursion your name will go down in history as one of the 10 million saints yeah. <laughs> from this particular millennium. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Your allies will perhaps receive a trophy world in, in thanks. Yeah, and they can live out their days. Uh, no, just kidding. They've got another mission next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be ground up and spit out too. <laughs> 
So last thing before we move on, uh, we've recommended it before, but if you want to learn more about 40K and Warhammer 40K role-playing, then two resources that we recommend. The first is the All Guardsmen Party, which is a recap of one group's transition from the Only War system to Dark Heresy, authored by Shaggy. You can find the link in the show notes. And the Grimdark Podcast is also a great resource in terms of podcasts for role-playing in the 41st millennium. So overall, would you recommend this as a campaign setting? I absolutely would. It is not something that I would have thought was my style, and it's something I actively resisted when people in our group brought it up, but I love it. What about you, Shane? Yeah, I love it too, and I think it's hilarious. You know, I I see the dark comedy and everything associated with 40K, so... I just enjoy immersing myself in the lore. I like playing it. I like running it. So uh, I'm a fan. Yeah. Do you like turning things up to 11? Everything here is turned up to 12. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you hear that, Ishan? That's obviously the sound of my repeating bolter. Well, then it's time to reload and move on to the character creation forge. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sans Carne, that's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us if you can't fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can also find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at TotalPartyThrill. So, in keeping with our 40k theme, this week we are building a Space Marine Librarian. Shane, what is that? A Space Marine Librarian is a powerful psyker who who, shushes you constantly. That's definitely true, because you are not venerating the Emperor when you are disobeying his order to shut up. (laughs) They're basically Space Marine psychers. So, they're, you know, warrior monks in heavy power armor who utilize spells alongside their crazy powerful force weapons, which they use to channel their psychic energy into melee combat and their trusty bolter that sounds like a crazy mary sue uh okay first of all this setting is full of mary sues (laughs) so you're gonna have to be more specific (laughs) but yes (laughs) every space marine is great at everything so just moving on (laughs) so librarians specifically are close combat beasts with excellent ranged damage from their large bolt pistols Plus, they've got magic powers that they obtain from an incomprehensible source. Yeah. That's tough to do in 5e because the system is specifically built so that you can't be good at everything. Right. So, naturally, we went for a class that isn't good at anything. (laughs) (laughs) And then added Paladin. (laughs) Right. So, what's the build? Vengeance Paladin 11, Undying Warlock 9. And so I push for Undying Warlock, so I will I will own this one. Okay. It is not a useful class no. uh, in its own right, but there is not a more fitting way to model the source of psychic powers than the worship of the Emperor, who is literally just an undying, undying. god. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Warlock feeds Paladin well through smiting and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It gets you very limited spells, which is sort of in fitting with the librarian from a combat perspective in the war game they get very few powers they roll for them kind of randomly they don't have a whole lot of options but they're pretty powerful options so i think the spell structure of the warlock makes sense for that right because warlock gives you two fifth level spells per 
short rest. And of course, you can also feed those into fifth level smites. Right. <laughs> so you just hop on the smite cycle. Yep. <laughs> you also get Eldritch Blast, which we're reflavoring as your bolter. Right. You're going to take Agonizing Blast on that so you can add your Charisma modifier to the damage. And we're going to reflavor the Hex spell as taking aim with your Red Dot Laser Sight. Right. And that's going to add an extra D6 to each of those blasts because it is a semi-auto weapon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, as you go up in level, you can shoot more targets with it. <laughs> Paladin, of course, gets you beautiful smites. So you can take those spells and channel them into your weapon and do a ton of extra damage, exactly like you do with a force weapon. Right. That is literally how force weapons work in the game. They channel your psychic energy. So we just, we found it. <laughs> <laughs> you also get Hunter's Mark, which will do extra damage on your attacks. You've got 2d8 radiant damage on every attack. You're immune to being frightened. You also get that handy Vow of Enmity. So when you pick out the enemy champion, you can stare him down and and draw him into one-on-one combat right right for your warlock pact we're gonna take book because you are after all a librarian yeah so you get some ritual casting and undying warlock also lets you cast silence which is also fitting for a librarian (laughs) and helps you sneak in power armor right So because it's 40k, you don't have a whole lot of options for character background. Uh, As a space marine, you are the genetically engineered son of the emperor. (laughs) You are made in his image. Built from his gene seed. Right. (laughs) No, literally, it's called that. Yeah. I didn't, I'm not trying to be dirty. But you do have lots of extra options uh, for organs. You know, you've got duplicates where you might need some extras. Basically a Klingon. Yeah. Fit that into your D&D campaign as you would like. Yeah, I think any kind of character that was born or bred for battle certainly would be trained as a paladin, right? You owe fealty to whatever created you. Right. Warlock just lets you reach either inside or outwardly to obtain even more power. And it's just perfect that it meshes so well with your martial prowess. Yep. In all of the same ways that, you know, you can always justify a paladin looking for more power from a warlock. Right, you can you can see it the same way. It's really one of my favorite combos. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the paladin who takes the shortcut. Look, it's for the greater good. Right, <laughs> I must succeed at all costs, even the cost of my soul. Right, <laughs> I would say I think a true space marine librarian should start warlock. You're chosen as a psyker first before you're really Being even turned a into space a space marine. marine. Yeah. All right. We are running long on time, so let's get out of here. If you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're willing to help us out, we'll read your five-star review on the air. You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. And remember, if you leave those reviews on iTunes, you will be entered into the contest for the Pathfinder Horror Adventures supplement. Just remember to send us your contact info so we can contact you if you've won. All right, what do we have planned for next week's episode? We'll be talking about system mastery. And in the character creation forge? We're building polymorph fromage. Oh, good. French jokes. You'll see what it means. That's it for episode 55 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Back in business.
his nets. All right, talking to the mic. Hey, hey, we're talking. We're talking now. We're recording. We're gonna. We got a contest. We're gonna give some away. Did you know Delilah After Dark has ten children? What the fuck is Delilah After Dark? Is this like you trying to tell me about Gem and the whatever, whatever? <laughs> Delilah, you know, late night and people call in on the radio and they're like, I would like to play a song for my honey. Wait, you, you the never, DJ? You, yeah, the DJ. You've never been in like a CVS at 11 o'clock in yeah, the morning? Yeah, no, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Ten kids? Ten children. How did she have time to work? I. That's that's like three years of maternity leave. <laughs> uh in awful America. <laughs> okay, fine. Six years in France. Like, I, I mean, like, what the f*** do you do? Nannies. Like, the world has passed you by when you get back. Nannies and au pairs. <laughs> uh, all right. <clears throat> Didn't we already use Hive Spire? Did we?